Paul writes, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For if by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul has introduced to us in this section that we're looking at the idea that Adam is a negative type of all that Jesus Christ is in positive fulfillment. Adam is the type negatively, and Jesus is the antitype, the fulfillment, the completion in the positive. And he's also introduced to us an idea of two humanities that are forming around these two individuals. There are those who are still in Adam and under the domain of the fallout of a sin, and there are those who through faith have been placed in Jesus Christ and as a result are the recipients of an outpoured grace and benefits that come from his great obedience in which he came to earth, lived a perfect and sinless life, and then in obedience offered up his righteous life on our behalf as a sacrifice for our sins. And so 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin, perfect in every way, obedient in every way, became sin for us in order that we might be made the righteousness of God on him. This wonderful truth that is ours that we receive when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. We've recognized the vast impact of Adam's sin touching every human after that time. Every human that is born, in a sense, comes into the world born under the sin of Adam and under the fall of Adam. And there has been a universally negative impact that has gone out from Adam's sin. Now, Christ is paralleled in this passage to Adam and as a result, he's provided, our passage says, a universally positive impact that's come. We read that here. Through one man's offense, death came to all men. Focus on that. Think of all individuals, every person, every human being, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteousness, a righteous act, the free gift came to all men, all people, resulting in justification of life. Now, there's some problems, some ends of the strings that we've been talking about that we need to address that come from this passage. And one of them is this. Individuals who take this juxtaposition of Adam and the universal impact of a sin upon all human beings and then putting Christ next to him and the universal impact of his death, they put these together and they've come to a conclusion that ultimately what is being taught here by Paul and what the New Testament is teaching is that there will one day be a universal salvation for all people. That's how they read it. And they basically reason if Adam's sin meant a universal fall for all humanity, and this is attested to in the passage we've just read, and there are other passages that speak to this. Verse 15 speaks to this with particular force. Then, as a result, it must mean that Jesus Christ must provide a universal salvation that eventually will be experienced by all people. As a result, there have been a number of books that have been written on this kind of topic, and they've become, of late, increasingly popular again, even popular and what we would consider to be the evangelical community. Just this last year, the board of our ministry in Canada had to dismiss one of our board members because he's come to the conclusion that everyone will be universally saved. As a result, among other things, it's not so essential that we go out and share the gospel with them now. It's like it would be good, but if we don't and we miss it and we don't go to reach individuals, 
It's going to work out for them in the, end, in the long run. And so, well, with that view, we, we consider that to be kind of heretical. That doesn't, well, that is heretical. It doesn't match with what the scripture teaches. And so we had to dismiss them from our board. This idea, by the way, that everyone will eventually get to heaven is theologically called universalism. I thought that the title of our sermon could be Why I Don't Believe in Universalism. We're going to address three questions. And the first question is, is this true? Is that what the Bible is teaching? And is that what this passage is teaching? That's the first question I'm going to answer. And the first thing I want to do is I want to concede, in a sense, a point. The person who sees a universalism expressed in this passage, I want to concede an observation that they're making. They're seeing that what is said in verse 18, which says that sin brought condemnation to all people, and that one righteous act brought justification to all people, they're seeing that these two things have to mean the same thing. There's a consistency. And it is kind of what we'd call an interpretive rule. And the rule is that when you have two words that are being used in the same passage, and they are either used to compare or to contrast, those two words have to basically essentially mean the exact same thing. They have to be addressing the same thing. And so the all in Adam has to be similar to or be accorded to the same meaning as the all in Jesus Christ. Or I should say the all in Jesus Christ has to be given the same force and the same meaning as the all in Adam. And that's what they're seeing. And so if, if there is a universal fall that comes upon all men in Adam, there has to be a universal, this is their thinking, a universal salvation that comes to all under Jesus Christ. And again, there's something consistent with this. Actually, in verse 19, the term changes from all to many. So if you're looking at your Bible, you'll see here, it says many. Through one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. By one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. And that many is just modifying again that all men. In other words, think of many as all again. It's a quantitative expression of all people, right? And actually, go to verse 12. And you'll see this same idea. In verse 12, it says this. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned, sounds very similar to something we read in Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's a universal statement. And so again, you have this all, meaning a quantitative expression of all people. In this case, there's a universality to it. And in verse 18, you have the phrase all men, and in verse 19, you have the phrase many, and they correspond to one another. In verse 12, you have this expression, all have sinned. And then in verses 13 and 14, you'll see in your Bible, most of your Bibles, it's bracketed because this is kind of like an aside. And verse 15 now is modifying what is said in verse 12. And here's what we read in verse 15. Verse 15 says this, but the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense, many died. Now the many is again modifying the all. Much more, the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. These have to be the same meaning. They're applied from one to the other. And so, the universalist reads that and says, well, this obviously teaches that there's a universal salvation. They might add other Bible verses, but this is one of their favorite verses. They might add another one. It's one that sounds very similar to this. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. We read it in our scripture reading this morning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, we read this. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Yeah, there it is. Universalism. Everybody's going to be saved. That's how they read it. And so how are we going to address this? Well, the first is we have to follow rules of interpretation. And 
We'll start with this one rule. Scripture must interpret Scripture. We must take the broader teaching of all Scripture and we must bring it to bear upon singular verses and portions of Scripture that we're reading. Another rule might be this, that we not only consider the broader meaning of Scripture, but we have to consider the context of the argument that Paul is making. In other words, Paul gets to explain what Paul is saying. And Paul is explaining it in other things that he said earlier in the passage. And then we have to study it within its immediate context and see if whether this is actually what Paul is saying directly in the immediate context of these passages, Romans chapter 3, verses 12 through 21. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to try to answer this question. Is that what it means? And we're going to apply those scriptural rules. And so let's look at this first rule. The first rule is this. The broader teaching of scripture. In this case, let's look at the broader teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles who are writing the New Testament are essentially giving commentary to everything that the Lord Jesus has taught them. They're expressing and teaching to others, and that's what Paul is doing as well. So let's look at the broader things that the Lord Jesus has said and taught and put that to bear upon this idea of universalism. Let's start with Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. Here, we're seeing this same rule where when you have a word being used two times in contrast or comparison, the word basically has to have the exact same meaning. And there in Matthew 25, verse 46, Jesus says this, And these, speaking of those who are going to come before him and two separate outcomes for those who come before him on the final day of judgment, he says, And these, now he's speaking of those who are unsaved, will go away or depart into everlasting punishment. And the word everlasting there is the word in Greek, ionios but the righteous into eternal life. And eternal there is the word ionios. And so you have here a statement that there are those who go into conscious, unending life in the presence of Jesus Christ. Constant, unending blessing, eternal ionios life. And what it means is that those who go into everlasting punishment are going into unending, conscious destruction or punishment, the word has to mean the same thing. And do you see there that if you apply that, it doesn't comport with the conclusion that the universalist is trying to force on Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19 in that whole passage. Again, let's remember that the Lord Jesus, when speaking of hell, spoke of it as a place of everlasting fire a place of unquenchable and unending fire where the engines of its destruction never ceased. And in relation to this very passage where we looked at here, we see many that are going away in destruction. Let's also add another passage of Scripture. Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. Remember in verse 25 it says, they will be sent away or go away or depart into everlasting or ionios destruction. And here in Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, the Lord Jesus touches upon at least some of those that will be sent away or go away. He says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Go away. He's sending the boy who practice lawlessness. Many will go from the judgment seat of Christ to depart to a place of unending punishment and destruction. That goes along with that idea that these will go away into everlasting punishment that we read in Matthew 25. Actually, for myself, the verses that seem to me the most convincing that the Lord Jesus in no way taught universalism are those passages of Scripture where the Lord Jesus gives warning to the outcome of sins. 
dire warning to the outcome of sin. He says if an individual were to cause a little child to stumble, that it would be better that a millstone be cast around his neck and it be thrown into the depth of the sea. But if ultimately he's going to go to heaven, not that big a problem. It'll work out, right? He says things like, you know, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. And if your hand offends you, cut it off because it's better to go into heaven maimed than to go into hell with a whole body. Well, not really. Because if ultimately you're saved, you're going to go to the place referred to in Revelation chapter 22 where there's a river that flows to the eternal city of God that's waters are for the healing of the nations. The eye, guy will get his eye back. He'll get his hand back. So no matter what he has to go through, whatever suffering is facing, Jesus is exaggerating. If there's not ultimately an eternal hell that people go to. Actually, the Lord Jesus said of Judas, who was to betray Christ, that it would have been better if he had never been born. Well, not if after all of it, eventually he's going to be saved and go to heaven. Not better that he'd never been born, no matter what he goes through. And Jesus also spoke of those who could be forgiven of any sin except for the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He says that individual will never be forgiven. And can you imagine that heaven might have within it anyone? Has anything that's not been washed and cleansed and forgiven? No. It's clear from Jesus' own teaching that it's impossible for us to come to these passages and believe in universalism. It's not what's being taught. It's not what the Scripture teaches us. Not only that, we can look at Paul. Paul gets to help us understand what he means. So go to Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. And remember, when Paul comes to Romans 5, he's coming through what he's already said and what he's indicating. And, and in Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, Paul's warning about the final day of God's wrath and judgment being poured out upon idolaters and upon individuals who think they're morally superior to idolaters and upon individuals who think that they're religiously, like the Jews, were religiously superior to those moralists, those Greek moralists, or those pagan idolaters. Here's ultimately where Paul is going to take them. And again, he takes the individuals there in the middle of chapter 3, this basic idea. But here's what we read in verses 5 through 8. But in accordance with the hardness of your heart and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek glory and honor and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath and tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. You've got to put that against this idea. See that there are tremendous vast, eternal consequences that are at stake in how individuals live their life and the choices they made. The third thing that I would point out here is the greater context is Paul is emphasizing throughout this argument, and he starts it in the middle of chapter 3. He's come to this point, and he'll go all the way through chapter 5, that we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. There has to be, on our part, a determination or decision to believe Christ to put our faith in Him. In John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, we're told that this faith of this believing in Jesus Christ is a receiving. We receive Him by faith. And that they're synonymous with one another. So the whole argument, and you'll see this in chapter 3. Let's have your Bibles in Romans chapter 3 for a second. And let's just kind of emphasize this. Let's look at verses 21 through 26. 
Because here, in a sense, Paul is bringing his argument to its fullest expression. What he's concluding is, listen, you're not saved by your moral activity. You Jews are not saved by following all your law. You're only saved when you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forward as a propitiation, that is, as atoning sacrifice by His blood, through faith, to be realized through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just, and the justifier of the one who has Faith in Jesus Christ. Now in chapter 4, he's going to emphasize this even more. And he's going to talk about this throughout the chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, in which we've come to our passage now, he begins it. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It's by faith. Now, even in the context of the passage we're looking at, look at verse 17 of chapter 5 where we're speaking about this all in Adam and this all in Christ. For if by one man's offense, death reigned through one, speaking of Adam, much more, abounding even more, those who receive, there's faith, the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. He's not abandoning this idea that those who come under the benefit and blessing of Christ, it comes through faith. So there is the broader context of all of Jesus' teaching. There is the broader context of what Paul has been saying throughout his letter. And then now we're even placing it in the immediate context in which Paul is talking about and making an argument that it's those who have faith in Jesus Christ that are delivered and that are saved. And this has to come in and bear in on what we understand is being taught here. So what might we add to all that we've just said here? Well, we can conclude that all individuals who are positively impacted by the saving work of Jesus Christ. Remember in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, it says that all in Christ shall live. That all who are positively impacted by the saving work of Jesus Christ are brought under that impact by their faith in Him, by believing in Him. That all of these are the ones who are in Christ are not the same. Now get this, all of those who are in Christ through the saving faith are not the same as all those who are in Adam. They're different. They're two different groups of individuals. Put it another way. All of us start out in Adam. When you're born, you're born in Adam. We all start out in Adam. We inherit the fallen nature that Adam gave us. We are on a trajectory of sin. We're under... We're being brought to and on a trajectory of judgment and condemnation. All of us. It's come upon all of us. But all of us do not end up in Adam. When you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're no longer in Adam, you're in Jesus Christ. You're in Him by faith, and you become a different category of individuals. We have a destiny that's set out for us from Adam of sin and death and destruction, but when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we have a new destiny. We're in Him, and in that moment that we're in Him, we have a destiny of forgiveness, of ongoing graces that we experience a promise that we can reign through Jesus Christ in this life and we shall reign throughout all eternity. In Adam, we are under the reign of death. In Christ, we're reigning over it. We're reigning in Christ. And so, there in a sense are two different groups. 
But there still is a problem here. So there's your question. The Bible does not teach universalism. The Bible is not somehow saying the all of Adam and the all in Christ are exactly the same group of individuals. There's the all that are in Adam and there's the all that are in Christ. And so we understand it that way, but we still have a bit of a problem. All right, so this will lead us to our next question. Do you feel like you're in a lecture in college? I was saying to my wife what I was going to be speaking on this morning. She said, you know, you ought to say, I said, what's the title of your sermon? I said, it's, the title is Christ Triumph in History. And she said, well, you ought to title your sermon Christ Triumph in History for Dummies. You need to make this really simple. And I said, I can't do it. I, this is as simple as I can make it. This is why we have to learn how to read our, the Word of God, and we have to study it. And this is why we're called to be students and to be attentive, and this is why you need to be in the Word over and over again. And this is why you even need to go back and test the things that I'm saying right now. So we have another problem, a bit of a question. It appears in this passage, and we can't deny it, that the all and the many are declarations of a quantitative reality. It's speaking of all. It's a number. It's all in Adam come under death. And by the way, we all start out under Adam. That's the universality of it, right? And then the all in Christ is there as well. And it's quantitative as well. It's there as well. But here's the problem. We recognize that. In this passage, it's declaring something that you and I are personally not seeing right now. It's saying all this quite quantity in Adam are going into death and destruction. But then it's saying there's an all in Christ that is quantitatively greater than the all in Adam. He uses the word much more. It's a language of quantitative expansion. He uses another word, which is periusu, where he says it abounds. If what happens in Adam abounds, so will all this grace abound in Christ. And the word there in Greek is to surpass. It's like to surpass in number. And then Paul adds on to it. Not only is there abounding through Jesus Christ of the numbers that will come to him, but he uses the word hyperperiusu, which means to superabound. It's to be on far beyond the numbers that are in Adam. And that's confusing to us. You know why? We don't see that. We don't see it adding up that way. Look, go out and read the newspaper. Go out and walk through your neighborhood. And it seems like the numbers are adding up on Adam's side. And doesn't the Bible say that we're a remnant? And didn't the Lord Jesus even say when the Son of Man returns that he asked the question, will he find faith on the earth? Doesn't the Bible speak of a the attrition of the faithful, and even a great apostasy that will take place among those who name him. And how do the numbers add up? There's a quantitative expression of numbers that are go Adam's way. And then in the same passage, there's a quantitative expression of numbers that go Christ's way. But the numbers that go Christ's way are said to be much more. The numbers that go Christ's way are said to hyperabound. And so really quickly, without... A lot of commentators basically say, well, the numbers are there for Adam, right? But in reference to Christ, it's simply speaking of a qualitative experience. And you know what they're doing? They're breaking a rule of hermeneutics. They're breaking a rule in which we interpret our scripture. You can't do that. But I know they're trying to salvage this thing and understand this thing. But there's another answer for us. But first, let me just emphasize to you this idea that the all is quantitative. That the all is speaking to numbers. And if it's true, then actually what we're being taught here is that the Lord Jesus is not simply the positive equivalent to the negative of Adam, but that his effect and the impact of his ministry and his work and his obedience goes superlatively beyond in its extension and impact upon the world. In other words, 
there are actually many more, abundantly more, who will come to experience the saving work of Jesus Christ than those who come under the death of Adam. It's greater, it's more extensive, and that's why you have this phrase, even more, or how much more, and this is why you have this expression that it surpassed or abounded, and then it it abounded even more, where sin abounded, grace did much more, it superabounded, it says. You can't get away from these things. That's what is being expressed. John Stott concludes consideration of this passage and the language that's used in this passage to draw the conclusion that the work of Jesus Christ to save men will be much more effective than the disobedience of Adam in bringing condemnation upon us all. He says this, quote, Christ will raise to life many more than Adam will drag to death and that God's grace will flow in more abundant blessing than the consequence of Adam's sin. Actually, John Calvin reached the same conclusion long before writing of the grace of Jesus Christ that it belongs to a greater number than the condemnation contracted by the first man. In other words, more will come under this grace. More will contract the grace, you might say, and come under the grace, the saving grace of Jesus Christ than those who have contracted condemnation through the fall of Adam. And that seems to be what's being said to us, and you see it in the passage. Charles Hodge, speaking on this passage and writing on this passage a couple hundred years ago, says this in looking at verse 21. The benefits of redemption shall far outweigh the evils of the fall. And then he begins to show the qualities of those benefits. But then finally, he comes back to conclude that it's not just qualitatively exceeding it. Of course, life qualitatively is better than death. It goes without saying. But he goes to point out that ultimately what is being addressed here is the quantitative impact of the saving work of Jesus Christ. And so he concludes that Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is giving us, quote, Reason to believe that the lost shall compare to the saved in no greater proportion than the inmates of a prison to the mass of the community. In other words, go to the county jail and count the heads and then go out and count all the heads in our community. And all the heads in our community are like all those who will come out of the saving work of Jesus Christ in relation to all those who have been brought under the influence of the death of Jesus Christ. Wonderful. Romans chapter 4 Paul takes us to the picture and image of Abraham. Abraham is, in Genesis chapter 15, called out from his tents. And God gives a promise to Abraham, and Abraham looks into the skies and sees all the stars in the sky. And if you've been up in the mountains in the middle of the night, you'll just see it's it's beyond numbering. And God says to Abraham, as the number of the stars of the sky, so shall your seed be. And no matter how many people have turned to Jesus Christ, when we study our Bibles, we see that only a remnant Only a remnant has turned to him. It doesn't seem like God is answering that promise, but that was God's promise. A numerical inundation of those who had come to believe in and find everlasting life and covenant through God, through Abraham's faith. And Paul indicates, by the way, that that promise that was given was not just given to those who were of Abraham's natural seed, but also those who are the seed of faith in Abraham. In other words, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you put your faith in him, you are no longer the child of Adam. You're the child of Abraham. You're of Abraham's faith. Here's the idea. Abraham is going to have more children than Adam. There are going to be more of Abraham's faith that ultimately will come and enjoy and enter into all the blessings of God. That's what's being promised to you. You don't see it. You don't see it. Well, that's as far as this passage goes. It doesn't tell us how that's going to be accomplished. It doesn't 
give an answer for what that's going to take place by saying that's going to be the great prevailing of God's salvation. We are inclined to only think of our salvation as a qualitative experience, right? That it's just something that we have and it gives us a great experience that surpasses what the world experiences. But God is actually promising as well quantitative impact over all the earth in which a numberless band of people, let me read that in the book of Revelation, will gather before the throne and worship him. Now I'm going to give you a bonus. Because we have to somehow say, well, what other teaching might we have in Scripture that might provide for this opportunity to take place? And so the other title of my sermon was going to be, Why I Am a Premillennialist. The question is, where do these numbers come in? Where do we see this abounding take place? There is a, a teaching in the Scriptures, you find it in, again, Revelation chapter 20, in which at the end of this age, Christ will return and he will establish a reign on the earth that will last for a thousand years. The Messiah will reign and he'll govern over the earth and he'll restore the earth and he'll bring the earth under a time of great fruitfulness. That seems to be what we're reading in Psalm chapter 72. And he'll reign under the earth and he'll, he'll rule with a rod of iron. He'll suppress, it says at that time, that he'll put Satan in chains and cast him in the pit. And he will rule with a rod of iron over people. He'll suppress all the instincts of sin. And at the same time, he'll let the flourishing of life and peace take place at that time. And this is called the millennial period. Now, there are individuals, wonderful individuals, who deny the idea of the premillennial return of Jesus Christ. They would say, yeah, we're just kind of living in a spiritual millennium right now. And that's our personal experience. And it's a qualitative experience. It's not a quantitative thing. It's just a period of time in which we qualitatively have a higher spiritual life than everyone else. And so they're called amillennialists, and at some point in time, Jesus Christ will return. The problem is that doctrine doesn't allow for a time for these numbers to come pouring in that we've just read about. It doesn't allow for a time in which this superabounding quantitative influence takes place. And so those individuals look at this passage and say, they have to mean two different things. It has to be quantitative for Adam, and it's qualitative for us. And, and then there are individuals who say, well, we're postmillennialists. Now, don't leave the church if you don't hold to my view here, please. But just hang. Just let me give you my defense. The post-millennialist says, well, really what's being described is a long period of time in which the church will slowly go into a golden age, and at some point in time it will reach a zenith of the golden age. And at that point in time, at the end of the golden age, Jesus Christ will come and he'll return and he'll set up the eternal state. And we'll reign, it'll bring heaven down upon the earth and we'll reign forever. And that's post-millennialism. That's a very popular, by the way, view of the millennium. But again, it doesn't provide an answer to how and when we'll see these numbers pour in. You know what does? The pre-millennial return of Jesus Christ. At the end of this age that we're in, in which we see darkness prevailing, in which we see Jesus Christ saying that the road is broad and many go to by destruction and the road is narrow and few that go into eternal life. At the end of this age, Christ is going to return. At the end of the tribulation, and during the tribulation, there's great judgments that will take place. But also during the tribulation, there are those that hear the gospel and are coming to Christ and being saved. And mortals, men upon the earth from every tongue and every tribe that are rising up in faith in Jesus Christ. And at that end of time, Christ will come to set up his thousand year reign. And these mortals will go into the everlasting kingdom. And we, who have been resurrected and raptured with Jesus Christ... We'll reign at that time along with Christ in that state. And in this perfect, blessed state, think of it, no disease, no war, complete peace, a fruitfulness that will bring ripened fruit to the tops of the mountaintops, will ascend upon the earth for a thousand years. And in that moment where Christ is reigning, and Christ, the one who is reigning, bears in his hands the marks of the nail prints in which he bore the sins of the nations. 
will reign in grace over the people. And oh, there's going to be a massive revival in which the Bible says the knowledge of the Lord and of God will cover the earth like the waters of the sea. And oh, the numbers, the numbers. The faithful that will pour into the kingdom at that time is Jesus Christ is triumphant in history. Adam will not triumph. His sin will not triumph. Jesus will sweep in the nations to gather around him and to receive his blessing. And then at the end of that age, we'll be drawn up into eternal state of worship and praise forever and ever with him. And that's the promise and perspective of scripture. And so our mission work and our going to the nations is to broadcast the coming victory and to call men now to enter into that triumph and to be a part of that band that will reign and rule with Christ even during the millennium and enjoy him throughout all eternity and There's an answer to the riddle that's before us in this passage. And that's why I'm not a universalist. And that's why I am a pre-millennialist and exultant. If my brothers who are not, were amillennialists or post-millennialists want to talk to me, I'll embrace them and I'll love them. And I'll tell them, well, you'll find out someday. We'll find out. What does this all call from us? Tremendous assurance. I am his and he is mine. Assurance when the nations seem to be all going wrong and the world seems to be turning upside down, etc. Assurance that God's promises are true and amen. It means this, that if I can believe that God will one day turn all the nations to himself and draw a great cavalcade of a numberless band of those who believe and trust in him throughout history, that right now he can turn the sin that's in my own life. He can turn it around. He can turn my own rebellious heart. He can turn my own brokenness. He can save me and redeem me. If he can turn the ages and what I see happening through the ages and throughout history and one day he promises I'm going to reign over it all. He can come now in me and reign in me and turn these things over. I can trust in him. I have assurance in him. He can work in me mightily and I can trust him for a full and complete salvation. And I trust him not only to forgive me for the depth of all my sins, but now having received him and believed in him, I believe in him. I trust in him. To save me from every appearance and every evidence of the power of sin that still roils in my flesh. And that's what we're going to go into in Romans chapter 6. It's a picture of how God now begins to give us glorious victory over the powers and impulses of our own flesh and our own fleshly life. It means I can not only have assurance, but I can have confidence. I can walk through the ages and the day we're in with confidence. I'm not ruining and look what's happening to the world. No, I'm confident. I tell people this. If you're a premillennialist, you're the only person who can sanely rearrange the furniture on the Titanic, even as it's sinking, right? Because, you know, whatever it's going into, it's rising up. Jesus is going to come and raise it up and rule and reign in righteousness over all the earth. And I'm just practicing for that day and being faithful to the delegation that he'll give me in that day when he reigns upon the earth. And I can live in confidence. And as a result... I'm ready to be in complete obedience to the one who's coming to reign and rule with a rod of iron. I want to be under his rule and reign in my life right now. Guide me and direct me in. There's a certain dignity I can bear in that as well, isn't it? I'm not in a panic. I rise above these things with a sense of dignity that's mine through Jesus Christ. And oh, oh, what devotion we give. We're on the winning side and our Savior shall win. Not encouraging? Incredibly. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Oh God, how we praise you and thank you. We worship you and glorify you. We thank you for all you've done for us, what you're doing in us now. And we thank you for the vision of what you've promised, even in the 
hints and the inklings that are found in this passage of the much more that Christ shall accomplish. Lord, by faith we see these things and we believe them and we see the echoes of that reality in our own life because we are not what we were. You conquered something that seemed to be unconquerable, our hearts, our souls. We praise you for that. We glorify you. Help us, O God, to go forward to our neighbors and go forward into our world, into our workplace, into wherever you call us with this sense of joyous confidence. And, oh, may we be bold in sharing with others, we pray in Jesus' name.